In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Goldberg Variations by J.S. Bach is one of the most beloved works in the classical canon. The Goldberg Variations are written for keyboard. They consist in an aria which states the basic theme and then 30 variations on that theme. Bach's art is such that each variation is uniquely beautiful on its own while sharing the common theme with all the others, a common bass line and chord progression. Bach's variations are a good image for how the appointed readings for today relate to one another. On the face of it, though, there doesn't seem to be much of a common theme that unites the two readings. The epistle seems like a miscellaneous collection of ethical instructions, while the gospel seems like advice on social etiquette, how to behave at weddings, whom to invite to supper. What, if anything, besides the whim of the framers of the lectionary, do these texts have in common? I want to suggest that if we attend more closely to our readings, we will hear them as variations on a common theme. Let's start with the gospel lesson. Of the two lessons, it's easiest here to discern the theme. At a Sabbath meal at the home of one of the chief religious leaders of the day, Jesus issues a powerful social critique. He notices how all the guests choose the best seats available and responds with a speech that skewers their behavior and no doubt led to a great deal of uncomfortableness. When you are invited to a feast, he says, don't presume to take the best seat. Instead, go and sit in the worst. In saying this, Jesus not only addresses those who are eating with him back then on that occasion, but also us. That's because what he says cuts right to the roots of our default tendency, sin-damaged as we are, to put ourselves first, to take the best for ourselves. By the way, if you don't believe me that there is such a tendency, just think about how you and your fellow passengers behaved the last time you boarded a Southwest flight. The last seats to go are always the worst, and even if you weren't one of the ones that greedily rushed to take the first seat, I know that you were resentful when you walked past them that did. (laughs) Jesus diagnoses this tendency as pride and shows how it leads in the end to humiliation. Whoever exalteth himself shall be humbled, he says. But at the same time, he gives us the antidote to pride. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And then just to drive the point home and to really make his host squirm, Jesus shows how even the most innocent seeming of our activities, giving a supper for our friends, can contain within itself the same sort of self-interest. We invite our friends to supper, and the unspoken expectation is that we will be invited in turn by them, or at least that we will enjoy their company that they will have something to offer us, that we will get something from them. Jesus issues a radical call 
to instead invite to supper those who cannot possibly respond in kind, from whom you have nothing to gain, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Now, whether or not Jesus intends this as a command to follow absolutely to the letter on every time we throw a supper, our very discomfort at his suggestion proves the point. We are not the sort of people who are inclined to do this, not the sort of people who are inclined to act without self-interest, who are not inclined to act selflessly. But Jesus calls us to the selfless way of humility. Whosoever exalteth himself shall be humbled, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's the theme as it's sounded by our gospel lesson. So what about the epistle? Is it possible to find coherence there in this seeming grab-bag jumble of ethical instructions, much less discern any common ground with the gospel? Well, I think there is. What unites the various instructions of the epistle and then also connects them with the gospel is an emphasis on what you might call the self-giving humility of love. The epistle begins, let brotherly love continue, and everything that follows can be understood as a variation on this one theme, an exploration of the ways in which love in its various forms involves a displacement of the self. We begin with Philadelphia, not the city, but the Greek word from which the city of brotherly love gets its name, Philadelphia, brotherly love, fraternal love. That's the basic theme very plainly stated. Let brotherly love continue. And the following verses set out and elaborate that theme. The first variation considers love in the form of hospitality, as entertaining strangers, a kind of love that requires a very concrete displacement of the self and of its interests. If a stranger appears on your doorstep, then you must set aside your plans for the evening and set an extra t- place at the table and perhaps even make up an extra bed or give up your own. The demands of hospitality displace my own interests. The next variation on the theme of brotherly love is played in the key of solidarity. Remember those that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. This call to solidarity with those in prison and with those who suffer ill treatment shows in another way the self-forgetfulness of love. It shows that I am not an isolated, atomistic individual whose actions only affect myself, but that I belong to a larger whole. I belong, as a Christian, to the body of Christ. We belong, all of us without distinction, to the human family. As John Donne The Anglican poet and priest famously put it, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. This theme of solidarity, and specifically the solidarity and the bodily sufferings of others, leads naturally to the next variation on the theme of love, 
namely erotic love, that most bodily of loves. And Eros considered here both as rightly ordered in marriage and as disordered outside the bounds of holy matrimony. In the text, fornication and adultery stand as clear manifestations of the self-satisfying pursuit of pride. The love of husband and wife, on the other hand, show in a very particular way the self-giving humility of love. The lifelong, unconditional, and exclusive nature of marital vows makes marriage into a school for charity, for learning to seek another's good, another's interests ahead of my own, for learning, in other words, to die to myself. What about verses 5 and 6? How does their concern with covetousness sound the theme of brotherly love? It's a subtle variation to be sure, but perhaps you could say that it develops the theme by way of contrast. The love of money stands in tension with the love of the brother. The love of money is firmly centered on the self and getting more for myself. Brotherly love, on the other hand, is about giving myself in service to my brother or my sister. And moreover, the love of money betrays a basic lack of trust in God's provision for my needs. And so insofar as I'm concerned with not having enough, with wanting more, I neglect the Lord's promise to give me what I need. I did not take the Lord at his word when he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And if I am so concerned with not having enough for myself, how will I be able to concern myself with the needs of my brother? How will I be able to see beyond the bounds of myself if all I can think about is how much I do not have? On the other hand, if I rely on God's help, on God's provision for my needs, then I can live in the freedom of generosity, free to give myself in love. Then the final variation on the theme, verse 7, concerns brotherly love in terms of the humility necessary to learn from others. And here in particular from leaders in the church. Remember them which have the rule over you, the text says, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, the outcome of their life. Here the focus is on a, uh, commending a posture of humble receptivity towards those in authority in the church, as those given the authority to proclaim the gospel of Christ in word and sacrament. Such leaders, the pastors of the churches, are held up as models of imitation. But notice how so. Whose faith follow, the text says. That is, to imitate them not as if they have it all together, not as if they belong to a higher and holier class of Christians, as if they were super-Christians of some sort, but imitate them insofar as their lives manifest the faith shared by all members of the church in common. Imitate them insofar as they do not trust in their own righteousness, but in the manifold and great mercies of our Lord. The point, more basically though, aside from this focus on the leaders, is that Imitation is a form of humility. 
a matter of recognizing that whoever you are, there is much you do not know, that you have much to learn from others, whoever they might be. So in all these ways, the epistle expands its central theme of the self-giving humility of love. And in the end, it brings everything together and recapitulates it in a sentence that rings out like the grand finale of a symphony. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. You see, in the end, Jesus is the fundamental theme of our two lessons. Our epistle and our gospel together amount to a picture of a life that nears the humility and love of the Lord Jesus himself. Christ is the measure and the meaning of humility, the measure and the meaning of love. And this is love, says St. John, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or as an old song has it, we know what love is because he loved us. Or again, as St. Paul says, let this mind be among you which is in Christ Jesus who humbled himself. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. That is the theme of our lessons. And today the Lord calls us in this word to look to Jesus, to imitate the self-giving humility of his love. Because these variations on a theme are not there for us to simply enjoy passively like an audience at a concert, but for us to actually perform, to live out. It's a call addressed to us, and to us not first as individuals even, but to us as a community. And the question for us then is, how will this community, how will you and I together, how will this parish of all souls live out the humility and love of the Lord Jesus? There are innumerable ways we can answer that question, but I want to propose one very practical way to do it. And that is to ask you to consider joining a discipleship group this fall. That is a small group of parishioners who meet twice a month to share life together, to learn together, to pray together. They are a space that gives us the opportunity to learn together to love, to learn to imitate the self-giving humility and love of our Lord Jesus. They're meant to be a space to practice brotherly love, to learn humility, to give ourselves to one another in love as we build our friendships in Christ. I hope you will join one of these groups this fall. In the end, though, my prayer is just this, that our lives might reflect the life of Jesus. That, as the Collect says, the Lord of all power and might, who is the author and giver of all good things, might make us into a community whose life together manifests the humility and the love of our Lord Jesus, to whom be all honor and glory, yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.